0: So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Luke chapter 5, and this morning we're going to pick it up in verse 12. But today we're going to talk about sin. Sin is not a word we hear often in our culture. If you were to stop someone on the street and ask them to define sin, they might say it's the violation of some arbitrary rule of religion. It's falling short of some burden, some standard that cramps our human freedom, our self-actualization. Most people don't have much time for conversations about sin. It's not a concept that fits comfortably into a modern worldview. Yet even those who have no truck with Christianity still object to being sinned against. They, all, they have this innate, we all do, this innate sense of when someone has wronged or taken advantage of us. We also recognize that corruption and vice, even dangerous thinking, can be contagious. Most parents, regardless of spiritual background, would affirm that bad company corrupts good morals. And despite kind of some of the excesses of of cancel culture, many of us would contend that some perspectives, such as Racial prejudice, Holocaust denial are pernicious enough to warrant repudiation. Christianity, though, defines sin with more clarity. The Greek word in the New Testament that we see most often translated as sin is hamartia. Can you say that with me? Hamartia. That's what it looks like in Greek characters. Hamartia means to miss the mark. It means to go astray. It means to slip into error. Imagine not hitting the target in archery or wandering from the path that traverses the canyon in hiking or getting your sums wrong along the way in a complicated math problem. That is hamartia. But those metaphors, they, they prompt further questions. What then is the target? What is the path? What is the mathematical law with which we've fallen out of step? Also, what are the consequences of us not hitting the bullseye, of us making a miscalculation, of us missing the trail? I thought to err is human, and and mistakes are just part of the learning process. To address the first question first, I'd say it's not a what that we've fallen out of step with, but a who In 2017, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn created what they call the New City Catechism uh, to teach their members the basics of Christian theology. It's actually pretty cool. It has now been converted into a devotional in Right Now Media uh, that you guys can have access to. But in it, they define sin like this. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God... In the world he created. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him. Not being or doing what he requires in his law. Resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So what does that mean? Sin is wandering from the God who made us, who loves us, who lays before us his way of life and thriving. Sin is distrust and rejection of his leadership. It's a refusal to live as he has called us to live, to be the people who we we were created to be. It's a willful decision to live without reference to him. And such a choice is disastrous. It results in our death and in the disintegration of all creation. This is not simply because God draws a line in the sand and then we cross it and then he says, okay, now you've sinned against me, you've, you've violated this arbitrary line that I've put up and so now you suffer my wrath, you'll suffer the consequences. God has every right to do that. He's God, and we are not. But I don't get a sense that that is how God parents us as his creation. I might have a tendency to parent my kids, kind of arbitrarily. Hey, kids, do not eat the last piece of gluten-free carrot cake. (laughs) And if they do, I will ground them from screens for a week. And why is that? Because I want to eat the last piece of gluten-free carrot cake. And I'm dad and I'm bigger. So I get to. And that's why I'm bigger. (laughs) With God, it's different. I I get this sense that he knows what will be detrimental to us. And I like the illustration uh, from the Redeemer pastor, John Lynn. He paints this picture. He says, our solar system exists harmoniously when all the planets orbit the same center, the sun. If, however, the planets all decide on their own what to orbit, or if some planets decided not to orbit anything, what would happen in our solar system? Death and disintegration. The solar system, as we know it, would unravel and fall apart because the planets would not be orbiting the correct center they would not be living in reference to the sun which is our sort of source of light and warmth and life and therefore everything would fall apart and be destroyed sin is like that it vandalizes god's good beautiful and orderly world and then not only wrecks havoc in our lives but it wrecks havoc in the lives of others in society It upsets, it breaks, it pollutes the very environment in which we live. And it's all because we've wandered from and grown alienated from God. And we're on this topic of sin this morning because Luke, in his gospel, is going to head in a similar direction. So far in recounting Jesus' public ministry, Luke has shared with us three stories, three little vignettes, that all have discussed how Jesus confronts and uproots evil. We had Jesus' showdown with the devil in the wilderness. We had his um, exorcism in the synagogue. We even had his healing of Simon's mother-in-law when Luke uses that language of rebuke and release. He's identifying the fever as this kind of outworking of natural evil in our world. And then the narrative pivots it pivots, as we were in last week, in Simon Peter's miraculous catch of fish. And we have our rough-and-tumble Galilean fisherman, and he falls to his knees before Jesus, and he says, depart from me, O Lord, I am a sinful man. And it seems that Luke uses Peter's outburst to launch us into three news stories that address how Jesus deals with and forgives our sin, how he restores us back into proper orbit with God and our fellow man. And we're going to examine two of those three stories this morning. And here is the first one, Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So we meet a man who is full of leprosy. And leprosy in scripture is this catch-all term for a variety of skin diseases. It doesn't necessarily mean Hansen's disease, the leprosy that we're familiar with, with the deadened nerves and the disfiguration and the falling off fingers and toes. The signs and symptoms of biblical leprosy look different. If you go to Leviticus chapters 13 and 14... uh, The signs and symptoms, they're quite lovely. If you need some devotional reading tomorrow morning, try Leviticus thirteen and fourteen. You'll get to hear all about um, discolored lesions and scaly skin and swollen and weeping and flaking patches of flesh. And much of the revulsion was due to the fact that the afflicted looked and smelled like a rotting corpse. They were the walking dead. They were the bacterially and fungally infested. And yes, your mind should be populated with images of like zombies or mushroom zombies or whatever. Yet the greatest suffering came not from the disease itself, but from its resulting condition of uncleanness. Because lepers were were cut off from all human contact by divine decree. The Torah, God's word declares in Leviticus 13, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes and let their hair be unkempt and must cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone alone. They must live outside the camp. Those who are so afflicted were outcasts from society and they were isolated, not so much to prevent the spread of infection, but to prevent the spread of impurity. Which is weird to say because my mind, when I hear leprosy, instantly goes to the issue of contagion. But that is not how Luke's audience would think they would associate leprosy instantaneously, not with a bacteria, but with sin. They were not afraid of catching a disease, but being tainted by the leper's spiritual corruption. And this is because almost every passage in the Old Testament that speaks of leprosy implies that God causes this disease as a punishment for rebelling against God's leadership in way. And as such, it was believed to be incurable, and such a diagnosis carried great shame. There was no medical remedy Because lepers were smitten by God, it was only through intercession and divine grace that they could be cured. Yet our leper does what is unexpected. Instead of confining himself to desolate places, he enters the city in pursuit of Jesus. And we witness his desperation and his faith. In great humility, he falls on his face before Christ. In full submission, he pleads with him. Notice he does not demand or make a claim upon Jesus. He asks, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There's so much packed into that. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Like Simon, he calls him Lord. And I think it's more than just politeness. It's reverence. Dare I say, it's an acknowledgement of Jesus' divinity. Because in their mind, only God can cure leprosy. And this man has no doubt in Jesus' ability to save him. And notice as well that he does not plead for healing, but for cleansing. He's confessing that at the root of things, his issue is not a skin rash, but a spiritual impurity. And he seeks not the relief of his symptoms, but the forgiveness of his sins and the removal of their consequences in his life. The leper is certain of Jesus' power and his authority, but in light of his utter unworthiness, he is unsure of Jesus' heart towards him. And I find verse 13 to be one of the most beautiful lines in all of Luke's gospel. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Who knows when the last time this man had been touched and embraced? It is such a holy and humanizing moment. And the miraculous happens. Instead of the leper's spiritual corruption transferring to Jesus, Jesus' utter goodness and purity and life goes pouring into the man, making him clean, making him whole, making him new. We have a walking corpse raised to life. And I can't think but think of that psalm we started with, right? Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins, and he heals all my diseases. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a line from the next story in Luke, but it fits here as well God alone Jesus alone can can forgive us our sins and when Jesus forgives us our sins not only does he wash us clean but he removes the consequences of our sin for this man that was his alienation from God and others you see, Jesus says, don't pass go, present yourself immediately to the priest. Jesus is aiming for a full restoration, not just a physical healing, spiritual cleansing. But he's also going for the end of this man's social Limbo. He wants to see him put back into proper orbit with God and man. And in this society, it was the priest's responsibility. They were kind of the public health official. They were the ones who identified the presence or the absence of leprosy. They were the ones who gave the formal acknowledgement that God had cleansed a person They were the gatekeepers that let them go back in to worship, to to reconnect with family and community. And Jesus commands and he says, go show them proof of what God has done for you. And then re-engage with God. You've been purified. You've been forgiven. Now go worship. Express gratitude to the Lord then go re-engage with your family, re-engage with your community. Show them evidence that you are a changed man, that you've been transformed by God's grace. So if God's forgiveness means he washes us clean and he removes the consequences of our sin, our repentance means that we are partnering with God to uproot sin's influence in our lives. As Paul will go on to say in Romans, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You have passed from death to life. Now join me in that journey. And this theme of repentance, it comes in clearer focus in the next account that we're going to look at. A little bit later in this chapter, in verse 27, we meet another sinner. We meet someone who's a little bit more recognizable to us, a tax collector. This is what we read. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were loathed even more than lepers, and their spiritual corruption was regarded as equally contagious. They, too, lived an isolated existence. They were ostracized by every self-respecting Jew. Like the lepers, they were cut off from human contact. They were barred from the synagogue. They were excluded from the assembly of God's people. And I know nobody likes to pay their taxes, but this was more than your kind of typical anti-government angst. Tax collectors were hated. On the one hand, they were wealthy men who were despised for enriching themselves at the expense of their neighbors. They were detested for cheating their fellow countrymen out of their hard-earned income. But that was their lesser offense. What was more objectionable was who they worked for. Jewish tax collectors were collaborators in their own people's oppression. They levied crushing taxes on behalf of the violent and cruel Romans. It would be like a a Ukrainian volunteering to rob his own people on behalf of the Russian invaders. They were traitors. And the only people who would associate with tax collectors were other tax collectors or women whose company could be purchased. And while the leper seeks out Jesus, Jesus pursues the tax collector and he beckons him to follow him. And in this account, Jesus' forgiveness is its subtext, not text. What is front and center is Levi's repentance. He leaves everything to follow Jesus. He's compelled to walk away from every loyalty that competes with Christ. And in order to partner with God in uprooting sin's influence in his life, he has to abandon his profession. There's no way to parse it or to recalibrate or to approach his work from a different mindset. He has to cut himself off from his source of wealth. It is required for him to change occupations. And there's an irony here and explains why Luke introduces this man as Levi. When most of us know him by the more familiar name of Matthew, that tax collector is the author of the first gospel of the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew. But Luke calls him Levi. Because remember, sin twists, it corrupts, it vandalizes. When we refuse to live in reference to God, we're separated from the life and the purposes for which we are For which we were created. And the name Levi marks this tax collector as someone from the tribe of Levi. He is of priestly heritage. What that means is this man has a calling on his life. God intended for him to be a priest, for someone who stood in God's holy presence and introduced people to the God who created them. He was supposed to bring people the very blessings of heaven and then bring back to God the gratitude and the praises of a grateful humanity. And sin had separated Levi from his holy identity and mission. And his repentance brings him back into proper orbit with both God and his fellow man. I love that Levi's first act post-forgiveness, post-repentance is to throw a party for Jesus so that he might introduce his fellow sinners, his community of tax collectors and prostitutes to the beauty of God's grace and power and love. And again, I hear Paul's words ringing in my ears. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When Jesus forgives us, he washes us clean, he undoes the consequences of our wrongdoings and our rebellions. And when we repent, we partner with Jesus to uproot sin's pernicious influence in our lives. But we also reconnect with God. We reconnect with our God-given identity and mission Jesus shares a table with us. He becomes family with us, and we become family with him once again. Our lives are back in reference with the sun, our source of light and warmth and life. But how does Jesus do it? We hear the fact of our forgiveness, but it's hard to see the means by which he does it. It's not cheap grace. Jesus doesn't just wave away our sin and write it off as insignificant or unimportant. He doesn't excuse it as a momentary lapse in judgment. He doesn't soft-pedal it as human frailty. When Luke calls our guy full of leprosy, Jesus doesn't shy away from that diagnosis. When the man pleads for deep spiritual cleansing, Jesus doesn't push back and say, hey, all I need to do is take care of your skin rash. Jesus is comfortable calling sin, sin. And indeed, to discover Jesus as our physician, we need to confess and admit that we're sick. I'm sick. And Jesus says, that's okay. I can deal with that. I will be clean, be forgiven, be made new, be restored to God and to your God-given identity and mission. So we confess, we repent. He forgives. He deals with our sin. He takes it on himself. I don't know about you, but I can't read this passage of Jesus touching a leper without thinking of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The prophet had seen on the horizon that God was going to send a savior, this messianic figure, but he also starts to recognize that this one who is coming is going to look nothing like we expect, and he describes him not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. in Isaiah 53, this is what he prophesies. He says, It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore. But we thought him afflicted and struck down by God and tormented. No, he was pierced because of our rebellion and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds, we are healed. We see the life and the healing and the forgiveness pass from Jesus to the man with leprosy. But we don't see the leper's uncleanness, his contagion, his alienation and isolation pass to Jesus. But I think it does. I know that in verse 16, Jesus is withdrawing intentionally to seek God in prayer. But I think it's no accident that Luke has the leper end the scene in community, in worship, reintegrated in right relationship to God and man. And Jesus ends in desolate places. He has exchanged places with the leper. He is now far from community out in desolation. Jesus has adopted the man's lot as his own. And it might be the wrong metaphor, but it's almost as if he's absorbed the man's sin, his sickness, his guilt, his responsibility, and he's taken it into his own flesh. And he's going to carry it all the way to the cross where he will deal with it once and for all. There on Golgotha, he'll be pierced for our transgressions. There, his wounds will achieve our healing. It is not cheap grace, but costly forgiveness. And I think Jesus recognizes that the moment he touches the leper. And we see something similar in the story with Levi. When Jesus eats with him, when he accepts his hospitality, And when he extends his hospitality to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, Jesus takes on their shame. Instantly, his reputation takes a hit, and he bears a portion of their guilt and a measure of their suffering. But this is why he has come to be a doctor to the sin sick, to call the disordered, the wicked, the rebellious, the wandering souls back into proper relationship with God, to cleanse them, to forgive them, to make them new, so that they might be caught up in his mission of mercy, that they might be put back into proper orbit with the sun, with God, our source of light and warmth and life. I'm going to invite the worship team to close us in song but as we look at these two scenes I I want us to ask ourselves some questions do we take our sin seriously ask yourself that do I take my sin seriously have I sought Jesus's forgiveness forgiveness And how have I put feet on my repentance? How have I partnered with Jesus to uproot sin's influence in my life? How have I reconnected with God and my God-given identity and mission? The leper and the tax collector are humble enough to say, hey, when I look in the mirror... I can acknowledge that things aren't okay. And they're bold enough to believe that God's heart is big enough to not turn them away. But they have to be willing to confess their need for healing and forgiveness. And they have to be willing to receive it. Are we willing to confess and receive and turn from it? God wants to do a mighty work in us. Not a half measure, a full healing. Not even just healing. Not even just spiritual restoration. But social reintegration back into the life, the calling, the community that he's called us to. But all of that comes through in humility, acknowledging, confessing, admitting our sin, and falling before him and saying, forgive me, not because of what I've done or my worthiness, because this is what your love is. You said that you would not turn us away. You said, I am willing, be clean. So may we do business with the Lord as we sing of his amazing grace. And don't just sing about it. Receive it and let it change you. Amen? Amen. Take it away, worship team.